Welcome to the Learning with Lowell podcast. I am Lowell Thompson, and my lifelong love of learning saved my life. A few years ago, I was in and out of the ER and ICU with no end in sight due to, at the time, a mysterious illness. I read medical journals, talked to scientists and researchers, and learned how to develop a good treatment plan, all of which put me on the path to becoming healthy, which I am now. I have met the team responsible for creating the drug that saved my life. And now I'm taking my experiences and love of learning and translating them into interviews with experts, CEOs, and scientists in order to achieve three goals in every episode. To have fun and interesting conversations that are enjoyable to listen to, to learn what these people are developing and creating, to hear what their tactics, strategies, tools, books, and resources they use to accomplish what they were doing, so that you can learn, apply, and see what else is out there and enrich your life with every episode. Additionally, I am running a pre-Kickstarter campaign right now over at monoliths.kickoffpages.com. It's M-O-N-O-L-Y-T-H-S.kickoffpages.com. Check it out if you want to show your support and see what I'm up to. Today, we're joined with Brandon Kingsley Hopkins at Washington State University, who is working on expanding the time that germplasm of honeybees can be stored so you it used to be like really really quick like maybe a week or two and he's gotten it up to like 400 days so in this episode we get into why that's such a big deal like storage of germplasm for honeybees and the implications of that and what is he doing to expand them. it's actually really really fascinating um you wouldn't think like hey how do we store germplasm uh would be fascinating but it actually really really is and it's a big deal because if we can get it to last longer we can do a whole bunch of other stuff to it um, we'll, we'll get into it. I don't want to spoil it, but yeah, check it out. Brandon was an amazing guest. And if you want to check him out as well, check out the show notes for his links and read his research at researchgate.com as well. Uh, preservation. Like, how'd you find your way into that? And like, what about it do you love that keeps you coming back to it? Sure. I, I, my path is probably a little different than most. So I, I started my undergraduate degree was in secondary education. So I was going to be a high school science teacher. And so just really at the end of my undergraduate program, I took a senior capstone course in embryology. So I took a, we had a lab where we got to, we super ovulated mice and we did artificial insemination, like embryo cell culture type stuff. And I really found like a strong interest in reproductive science. And so I was, offered a, an opportunity to get a master's degree in that in that lab and so that was kind of where my interest first kind of came about in reproductive technologies that kind of stuff and then it was really only at the end of my master's work that i did anything with honeybees and it was just a single tube of semen that was sent to our lab that we worked on developing cryopreservation for honeybee semen and so I'd never even seen a honeybee hive or colony until I started my PhD here at WSU. That's interesting so but that what what keeps you uh like going because like you, you've done more than just like you know like a PhD's worth of stuff I would think because you have like a couple of them out. I was looking at you through ResearchGate if anyone else ever wants to uh, read articles on like scientists will I have to do like paywalls ResearchGate's really great. Yeah research. But, yeah, research gate is great for that. Um, yeah, and actually now I don't even don't even necessarily not that I don't do a lot of work on cryopreservation, but the there's been a lot more interest or, or push in the industry to work on uh, the sort of short term solutions or their immediate problems in the in the commercial beekeeping industry. And so a lot of my work has been more applied as far as varroa control and management of of colonies. 
So I still do crowd preservation and I work on uh, freezing semen for the US, the USDA's National Animal Germplasm Program. And we still make collection trips to, to Europe and Western Asia to collect honeybee semen and freeze it but um so a lot of that work you know the, the research gate stuff and that published stuff on cryopreservation is just a sort of a small part of the the bee research that i that i'm involved in so that's you asked about what keeps me interested in going and doing this stuff is that there's still these huge problems and and the fact that i don't necessarily work on one thing all the time probably mm -hmm you know, I'm tired of that maybe. And so it keeps it fresh that, you know, I, I work on lots of different areas uh, of research related to the bee industry, beekeeping. Is there any effect, like if you look at like the end of your career, is there any effect that you want to see that you're working towards right now? Oh uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I'd like to see the use of cryopreservation of honeybee semen used like it is in say cattle industry, for example. So in the cattle industry, I think something like 80% of dairy cows are um, inseminated, you know, artificial, using artificial insemination. Um, they use, you know, cryopreserved semen to, to do progeny testing so you can select for the best bulls and then preserve that. So you still have, you can breed cattle through time because you have frozen semen from 1970s and 1980s, you know, you can look back in time and select, use that semen, those genetics for selection because you have it frozen from lots of different individuals. And so I'd like to be able to have the beekeeping or the bee breeding industry utilize that tool like they do in, in cattle or other important agricultural species. And I think in, in one of your, one of the projects you worked, you worked on, I heard a noise. Sorry, that was me. It's all good. Do you need to check it? I can edit it out. Okay, I'll edit it out. Um, so anyways. Um, I don't know how to turn the sound off of the, so that I don't get every time an email comes in. Maybe I can so, just. If, if, it, if it happens, just like, give like a one second pause and then I'll, oh. I'll, I'll, I'll rip it out. So it's not a problem whatsoever. The, um, I know in one of the, the, the projects you worked on that you got um, some pretty good efficacy over like 450 days. How long, how, much, how big of an improvement would you have to make before, because I'm not familiar with how long cattle semen can be preserved, but like, uh, but it seems like you did a pretty good improvement compared to like, like normal non-preserved semen lasting about two weeks and then getting into about, you know, over a year. That seems pretty good. But like, how big of an improvement would you like to see after like, like 450 days? Like what's the, like the amount that you'd want to see? Sure. And so those are really two different, I mean, two different things. So talking about cryopreservation of semen is really for this like really long-term storage. So nobody really knows how long, you know, it could be hundred years or 10,000 years when it's frozen in liquid nitrogen, if it's frozen properly. Um, but that also causes a lot of damage to the sperm. So the quality of the sperm when you thought out is not, not really great. You know, it's useful, but it's not like fresh semen. And so, that paper you're talking about is the sort of the preservation of semen above freezing. And so honeybees are pretty unique in the fact that without too much trouble, you can hold it at room temperature for a couple of weeks. Whereas say like most mammalian semen like cows, you know, I think it takes a bit of effort to hold it for a couple of days, you know, two, three days is probably about the max without using free, you know, without using cryopreservation. And so, 
But honeybees are super cool because the queens store semen naturally after mating. So they make a, a mating flight and mate with multiple males on that flight and return back to the hive. And then they store a subset of that semen they got during mating. And they can continue to head a colony laying fertilized eggs with that stored semen for two to five years. I think literature has even described maybe a queen lasting seven years. So she's storing that, that sperm above freezing temperatures for, you know, for multiple years. And so I guess back to your question would be the goal would be, it'd be nice to have a system where we could hold fresh semen above freezing for, you know, a year or two years and have it be, you know, top quality, you know, like fresh semen, like, still highly viable mm. so that was kind of the goal of that paper was to try to see how long you could hold it above freezing and still have it be viable makes sense though is there anyone working on breaking down how the queen is able to keep it viable for years and years like even with our technology we can't replicate it yeah i mean there's some work you know they look at the the components of the fluid that's in the spermatheca that's the storage organ in the queen that st stores sperm so there's been some really good work by um, Boris Bayer, who was in Australia. He's now at UC Riverside, uh, looking at the proteonomics of the, like what kind of proteins are the other constituents that are produced uh, that go into the spermatheca fluid contents. And mm -hmm. so some of that work would be really, is, is valuable for figuring out how the spermatheca works and how it can hold sperm for so long. Well, sounds interesting. The, um, what uh, kind of going back to a, a previous question I, I asked before we jump into like <laughs> some more technical questions as well. The, um, but there's this, um, it's more of a psycholo psychology term. If you've heard, if anyone's ever listened in for anything with Robert Green, like he, he talks about it a lot or even Malcolm Gladwell, he talks about these things called primal inclinations, which are like the things when you were a kid that you were interested in that if you like tap into will are the things that you probably be better at. Cause you have like a, a natural affinity for where like, most people, if you were to like try to do something you have like no affinity for, it'd be harder for you to learn because like there's not something there like driving you to do it. And so like for me, I really like exercising and like I do it through hiking. So there's like, there's like whenever I go to do those things, I always imagine like seeing like the green leaves and stuff like that that gets me excited about it. Is there anything that, this doesn't have to be science related. Like I just, I'm curious, like in a general uh, way, is there anything like that in your life that you kind of like, envision and are passionate about or interested in the same way or that you would classify as primal inclinations that have led you to where you are now i don't know i mean it, yeah i mean i guess i haven't thought about it that deeply but um off the top of my head I, I think it would just be like as a kid liking to tear things apart and rebuild things and so mm -hmm. and maybe that's not a direct link to working with honeybees necessarily but a lot of the work that that I like the most as far as research and science that I do now is really just the, the idea of seeing problems and then trying to like develop something to fix those problems. So a lot of the work that I have done is um, not necessarily, you know, it's not super basic science. It's sort of like applied and trying to develop technologies to, to solve problems. Mm -hmm. um, like, you know, nobody really using frozen honeybee semen. There being a few papers, but then, knowing that that's an issue and it could help in a big way and to try to develop a solution to that gap in knowledge or that 
that problem rather than studying the, the basic science behind it, just trying to develop technical solutions to, to problems, I guess is kind of that love of like tinkering or taking things apart or, you know, seeing how things work. Mm-hmm. Might be. Uh, yeah, no, I think it's, that's it. It's, I'm, I'm a similar way. Like if I were to be a PhD person, I'd want to do the implied stuff, but I, w- I was a tinkerer when I was a kid as well. So it's like, I'd break, break, I'd like get old computers and like break them down and then like try and put them back together. Not successfully all the time, but uh, it was fun like seeing how all the parts fit together. Yeah, there you go. But one thing, and this is like some, I always kind of wonder like uh, how people make research in the sense of like how they make decisions. So this is like, this is where maybe some esoteric questions come in, but I'm curious um, on, on two things. One, there's like, uh, there's three day intervals that you picked on the, and this is like for anyone like following along, this is like the gel coated tubes extended above freezing storage for honeybee. Um, that's like the first part of it. And I'll I have the links into the show notes for everyone who wants to check that out. How did you know what days to pick? Like what made you feel like the, the three intervals, the 45.99 and 4.39 would be like the, this is like really technical, but I'm just curious, like were the, was there any special significance for those days or were they just like match for when like, I don't know, everything lined up? Yeah, that's a good question. It's just kind of when everything lined up. So, you know, because they're, they're kind of oddball days to the 439. It's just, when we so like especially the the long term date is that um, to use the that semen for the insemination of queens we had to have queens available at the right age to inseminate and so just based on the when we could make queens because it's sort of seasonal and so here you know we can have winters that that seem to go on and on and we can't make queens and so that date would just be like when we could finally make queens and then you have to cage those queens to keep the virgins and then those virgins have to be seven to ten days old and then you can do the insemination so that date just happened to fall on when we had virgin queens available for insemination and the 99 days was was probably about the same we were probably shooting originally like in the design of the study for say like 90 days you know maybe three months and then uh you know, sometimes delays happen or when you can produce those, vir- you know, make the graft and produce the virgin cage cells and mm-hmm. have them available. So it's, yeah, not like, you know, we didn't pick those numbers for some, you know, amazing research reason. It was mm-hmm. just when we could do it, basically. Makes sense. Uh, yeah, it was just like such odd names, uh, uh, numbers. It was like, I wonder, if, I don't know, like, are they aligning for something? No, it's uh, just like, a, yeah, I mean, it's a little bit like, a combination of research and sort of farm work and so a lot of this work is weather related and and you sometimes you can't really force biology so you have to yeah. work with the the biology of the insect that you your, your organism and so it's really based more on that than yeah. is it, magic number. I, i've heard about queen banking for adult queens once they've been inseminated i don't know if you could do any queen banking for like virgin honey queens Honey, yeah, honeybees, queens, um, to like fi- like have them always kind of like nearby, so you don't have to like have otter increments. Um, which kind of leads into my second question: was is there any like special significance, or uh, like the the population size that you tested, or was it just like the smallest manageable size that you could use to still have significant variables? I mean, uh, data come from it. I was just wondering like how people choose like their n, like that, like that is a very like maybe like nerdy thing to ask, but. No, yeah. yeah, that's a good question. And I think, I mean, I think in, like in this case and oftentimes like in research related to this is the, a lot of times the, the variable that decides that is um, 
the amount of semen you can get. So one of the difficulties in working with honeybee semen is that each drone only produces a single microliter. And then um, of that, you know, even if you get mature drones, maybe only one in five, you know, produce semen really. So it takes a lot of drones, a lot of processing to collect a significant volume of semen. And then when you have to divide that into different treatment groups, it really limits the volume of semen you have to work with mm. for each treatment group. And then each queen needs a few microliters each. And so um, a lot of times the number of queens that we do in an experiment like this is restricted by the amount of semen that we have mm. uh, to work with at the beginning. Um, I mean, sometimes the amount of queens can be a limiting factor as well, but just because the production of queens um, is somewhat expensive as far as the amount of bees and resources it takes to, to rear queens, and then the amount of resources it takes to make up nucleus colonies, these small colonies that um, the queens go in. And so that takes a lot of resources as far as the bees that you have available to work with. Hmm. So that's kind of the main thing. More than, you know, a lot of times you, you can run statistics to look at, um, you know, the power of an experiment based on sample size and choose it like in a real statistical manner. But for us, we kind of don't have that privilege. We have to kind of, we're limited by this, the volumes or the biological material that we can collect. Hmm. That makes sense. That, um, so that, I know there's like, there's a couple of people on each of the, the research articles that I read. I'm curious, I'm always wondering like how, what people are particularly great at and like, what do they bring to the table? And so what are the things, are you like, the math guy because like of your tinkering background or are you like the guy who puts it all together on the macro scale um in terms of like research projects because there's like three or four people on them i'm just yeah, curious yeah. like so yeah i think i'm the i think i'm more like the hands-on kind of guy the the guy that goes out in the field and and makes it work as far mm -hmm. as collecting the semen uh you know doing the inseminations making say like the you know making those gel coated tubes um you know the person in the lab, not necessarily the, you know, I'm not the best writer on these teams. I'm not the stat, you know, I'm not the best stats guy on the teams. I'm kind of just the person who's more like the um, technician almost. I don't mm. you know, more like the lab tech kind of guy. Makes sense. The, I don't, you might like that kind of jumping the shark a little bit, but I always like to talk about books. You might like the book Wooly. There's a guy in there that uh, is a part of the book where they're trying to get, I think it's like placenta from like an elephant and there's like a technical guy that like, uh, like drives into a zoo and tries getting it. It's really funny, but like the rest of the book's really good too. It's like how to bring back the woolly mammoth. Not really, but like, that's like the, the capstone, but you might like it. Um, cause there's like some technical nerd stuff in there, right on. but, um, I asked that question. Um, okay. So this is like, not only was like meta questions, I always wonder like how long, cause like in a, in a research study, they just kind of like summarize everything to the extent like someone can replicate it and then like have results. And so, but I'm always wondering on like the human cost of like time and like the opportunity aspect of that where like if you're doing this, then you can't do other things. And so with any of these research projects or maybe one that you're working on right now that you'd love for people to hear about, like um, how much time or any other things that you can think of, but I think of time as like the most valuable thing. Like how much time does it actually take to go from like zero to 60 in terms of like thinking about a project and like implementing it and like what are the big roadblocks i guess like you've, you've talked about a couple of them like um, having like sperm on hands and having queens nearby and the population that you need um 
as being two variables that limit like the how quickly something can be done. But I'm, I'm wondering like what other things seem to take up a lot of your time and uh, like cost a lot in that way. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, well, the hard part is that sometimes projects come about and it's just like everything goes together and you can pull it off really quickly when there's that urgency. Um, but yeah, I mean, in bees, the biggest limiting factor is um, the season. So, I mean, there's really, there's almost no work you can do in bees from November to to January or November to February. And so um, that's, I mean, that's a major limiting factor as far as progress, especially when it comes to re reproductive type studies, because you only have access to drones really from March to, I mean, even March at now, April or May till about August to here. And so you only have like a, really a few months to, to work with that side of the, of the equation. Mm -hmm. And so and for us, we just do other projects at the same time, or, you know, there's other research that we do in the fall and winter and spring months when we can't be doing work with drones. I don't know if that answers your question. No, I, no it does. The, Cause actually, actually that's one of the things I really liked about the value of what you're like the, the ability to have sperm last, you know, longer periods of time is that it takes care of like that cyclical problem. But, um, wouldn't you be able? Wouldn't you be able to like import bees from? I think Hawaii is always producing some. Or at least whenever I need a, a queen, and it's like winter time, like uh, Hawaii usually has one. Though they like they sometimes don't work very well. But right. are are you allowed to import? Because you talked about a lot about like having to go places and collect the the semen and the and that type of stuff. But is there any like partnerships on the ground in these other areas that can produce queens during those times so you can keep going? Though you'd probably have to have like some temperature controlled facilities. I don't right. know, maybe that's like a cost problem, but I, I don't know. I'm just curious. Like, No, I mean, the one way would be to just, if you could have like, if you could work in Australia or South America or somewhere on the, in the other hemisphere so that when it's winter here, you could go there and work. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, Hawaii does produce queens um, almost throughout the year. And so you can ship, you can't ship material to Hawaii, but they can send material back here. Um, and so you could probably, you know, develop a relationship and we work with queen producers in Hawaii uh, for them to send material here. But then the problem would be is you can't make queen, you can't make virgins here and you can't install them here. And so once you had the material here is what could you really do with it once you had it as far they could send, I guess, virgins here and they could send semen here. But then we wouldn't have nukes or we couldn't actually go out and work bees in the field because mm. you know, there's three feet of snow on the ground or something like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so you, but you cannot import um, honeybees or germplasm into the U.S. from anywhere else, right? I mean, Hawaii is a state, so you can do that, but you can't import material from outside the U.S. into the U.S. It's been illegal or restricted since 19, the Honeybee Act of 1922. Mm. Yeah. I thought that was just for whole, whole bees, but like, no, it includes, I think that, I think originally it was, and then. They they have amendments or whatever, and I can't remember when that amendment was added, but it, it specifically says, you know, honeybees or their germplasm. And so hmm. we're able, we have a, a, a permit through USDA APHIS to bring in honeybee semen. And it goes through special quarantine that we send small samples of the semen, these aliquots to a lab in Maryland who screens that semen for viruses. 
And then only after that data is sent to APHIS are we allowed to move any of that material or queens that have been inseminated with that material. Outside of, we have APHIS designated quarantine yards here in Pullman where we maintain those colonies until they're released. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I did not, I know about the original act, but like the idea that like the germplasm, I guess like with uh, clinical collapse started like so little is known that they would want to like limit a variable like viruses coming in. Um, I didn't think about that. That's really interesting. The uh, price mildly irritating <laughs> for people like you. But, um, so yeah, but it's a good thing really. I mean, that's why we have trach. I mean, the reason why we have tracheomites and varroa mites and varroa mites are the biggest problem in beekeeping is because people illegally brought bees into the u.s and that's how, i mean that's how those mites got here mm. and so it is good to have that in place and for those that want to to bring germplasm in or something like that you know they should be going through this kind of although it is you know difficult there's a good reason to to have those quarantines in place mm. yeah and to give kind of a sense of like what happens when you don't follow these type of things? I had a, uh, I, there was a couple episodes I did on uh, citrus graining, which is like, it's called lung one bing, but like, I don't want to say that without sounding like stupid. So I just call it citrus graining. Yeah. It's basically like, um, if you've ever seen interstellar, there's like this blight that like kills plants and it's like really, really bad. And um, so there's this, this uh, virus that's transmitted, I think from an aphid that goes into like the tree bark and like, kills it from being able to uh, transport nutrients up and down like the bark. And, um, and so it's cost like $8 billion in damages and like all of citrus, like oranges in Florida, like 80 to 90% of them have been wiped out for the last 10 years. So it's like controls are really, really important <laughs> because we don't want to like wipe out oranges, but, or bees in this case, but that just to give people listening, like how big, um, like, maybe understating it like a little bit, like how important it is, because if you don't do it, like the uh, people basically brought in leaf cuttings, which is where in tree terms, it's where like you kind of like take a branch and you cut it off, you bring it home and you like shove it on another branch, uh, tree and it grows. And that started it in here. That's one of the ways that they think it happened. And so like something as innocuous as that, like no one really trying to harm anyone other than their, their backyard turns into like wiping out an entire species pretty much in Florida. So like, yeah, just like emphasizing how important it is to like listen to these types of things. Yeah, for sure. Is there any technology that you're excited about coming into either beekeeping or research? I've always thought about like what people would do or why people haven't tried um, automating the insemination process because it does seem like a discrete set of things you have to do, which is like what automation is really good at doing. But I'm just curious if there's anything, if you're like a tech guy, I mean, you're you're in Washington, but you're not like near the tech center, but I'm just curious, like, is there any like technology or uh, um, research uh, tools that coming out that you're excited about or that you would love to see yeah there is you know on the reproductive side you know i thought about that originally too you know but the really the most difficult process is really in the semen collection it's not really in the insemination side of things um and so in the semen collection side isn't as easy say for automation but if somebody out there was really interested in doing that you know I could see how it might be worked out on the insemination side, you know, with um, with some microcontrollers and micromanipulator type devices. So it could be done. It's just, it's not the limiting factor in that process. It's really the semen collection side. And it's really, you know, a lot more, 
difficult, I would say, to automate necessarily. But there is some cool stuff just on the management side that I think will make a big difference in beekeeping. And it's not it's not as flashy and cool as, say, like unmanned aerial vehicles or some cool things like that. But uh, so we work on uh, indoor wintering or these controlled atmosphere storage for honeybees. Mm -hmm. So similar to the type of facilities, I don't know if you know about how they store apples, but the reason we have fresh apples year round is because they put apples in these giant concrete buildings that are like sealed, the airtight sealed buildings and refrigerated and they can lower the oxygen levels down to like 2% or something like that. And they fill the room with nitrogen and that prevents the, the apples from um, maturing, you know, from over ripening. Mm -hmm. The beekeepers are using, you know, similar facilities to that, the, to hold, you know, 40,000 colonies in a controlled atmosphere room over the winter period so that the bees consume less honey. They're not spreading diseases, uh, that kind of thing. And it's mm -hmm. making, seems to be making a big impact in the industry. And that's when most of those losses occur. So if you hear about 40% losses of honeybee colonies, most of those occur in the winter months. And so these indoor storage buildings, I think will make a big impact and that's sort of techno technology related. Um, the other things I think will be super cool is the use of sort of like GIS maps uh, to improve the management of bees as far as their locations. So I don't know if, people know, but there's sort of four main factors that contribute to these large colony losses in sort of big general scope. So one is the varroa mite that I mentioned um, and other you know, virus, other associated diseases like viruses and stuff. And then forage and nutrition is a major one, just that land use management, land management, farming practices have all changed. And so the availability of food is a big one for bees and beekeepers. You know, the third one is being, you know, some pesticide related issues and then uh, breeding and genetics. And so I think the, the use of some GIS maps and location services and what kind of plants and a forage availability, that kind of thing might help beekeepers uh, manage their colonies for honey production and availability of pollen and forage for bees. Mm -hmm. I sent to the... Um it's kind of like a fact or fiction question because uh, I get the like, weird emails from my friends who don't own bees. Um, and I don't know these answers, but uh, this is one that I was asked recently and I was like, I didn't know this was a thing. But like, apparently there's this, uh, it's cool if you do not have an answer, this answer. Yeah, okay. I don't know where <laughs> you're not like put on the spot. But like someone was telling me that like 5G, uh, like 5, 5G is somehow like screwing up bees. It's like, why would that be any worse than 4G? Or any or any other G. Like I don't know if this is real, but like I don't know if you've heard of that. But I'll tell you. I mean, I, so I haven't been working in bees as long as some people. So, you know, when I first started, I don't know, ten years ago, almost now, nine years ago, they it was the same story. You know, that some people believe that cell phones or cell phone towers or power lines um, mess with the bees, but I've never seen a single bit of peer reviewed publications showing that i mean i think people have put cell phone transmitters and cell phones directly in colonies and the hives do just fine i've personally worked bees a beekeeper runs bees right directly under power lines so some of these like right where they clear brush um, 
there are excellent places for bee forage and the bees were doing just fine directly under the power line. So I, yeah, I don't know enough about even the difference between 5G and 4G, but yeah, I, I, I feel pretty strongly saying that cell phones are not killing honeybees. Good to know. I'll, I'll try and find a, I'll follow up with like a researcher who specializes in this and I'll send you the there answer. You well. yeah, yeah. Um, the, all right. So here's like the wrap up question I was like to ask people. So what is a problem you were having that you'd love help with? The, uh, the way I think of this is like a lot of people, like there were some people on here that uh, like they said, Hey, I want to talk to this type of VC because our uh, angel investor, because I not for funny, but because um, they wanted to like get their take on what they're building. And like a VC, uh, uh, angel investor like that actually reach out to them. So like any, like it's kind of like the end of like a Ted talk where you get to like make a wish if you win. Um, but like, who knows if it'll come true, but like, what is a problem that you were having that you'd love help with? Yeah. Well, there's price. There's a lot if I could really sit down and list it out. Um, no, but I mean, one thing, like I said, is I think when, when I, so I don't, so a lot of people don't kind of understand and even I still am learning is that, uh, the beekeeping industry, while there's lots of like hobbyists and stuff, and that's a major side of it. I mean, the the big side is these commercial beekeepers that operate thousands or tens of thousands of colonies. And that, not to say hobby beekeepers aren't important, but these are the guys that are deliver, delivering pollinators to produce all the almonds in California and the apples that you eat and the strawberries and stuff like that. It's not, it's not the guys with a few hives in their backyard like me, you know, or it sounds like you probably. Mm-hmm. And it's, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it's these guys that are the ones when they lose 20% of their colonies, you know, it's their livelihood and it's those bees that are producing all the fruits and seeds and nuts that we, that we eat. Mm-hmm. So those guys, you know, to help them out, you know, I think one of the major things that will help them out and there's a need for, for those folks out there listening that have this kind of skill set would be, um, someone you know like amazon or fedex or some who's developed these really good systems for tracking and um management say of all these boxes because that's what these beekeepers are i mean they're moving these pallets around and they may have hundreds of locations and these bees spread all over and they get moved in and out at night um and you're trying to keep track of where they are you know where they've been um, how they've been treated and then relate that back to the survival of them. And so a good system to keep track of who's moving them, when they're being moved, how they're being treated when you have 10,000 or 50,000 colonies, um, you could use that data in like a big data management system to make major changes in, in how those outfits take care of their bees and improve their colony survival. If you had that kind of data which would be, I think, fairly easy to collect if you had the right kind of guy out there, you know, the right mm-hmm. inv- angel investor or whatever you want to call it to, to develop a system like that. Yeah, I was uh, recently re- uh, reading that Amazon's AWS, like predictive, like the, the same thing you were talking about, mm-hmm. that they're making it available for everyone to use. So maybe it's like the great time. Uh, anyone listening in there, this is like people are, uh, even Amazon's making it so you can use their systems. Yeah. So, um, uh, what is a question you have that is unanswered, like an unanswered question? Like the, the generic one that I kind of go with, uh, is that if the big bang made the universe, if you were to go back in time, like shoot the big bang in the head, like what would be here in its stead? Like, cause there's no universe to be made. Well, the universe would still exist actually, but like, what would, what would populate it? 
this bugs me. And then what was here before the, the Big Bang? Apparently, like, you can't answer that question because the Big Bang established timeline, so there was no before. It's just, like, zero. But, yeah, so it doesn't have to be that big. It could be anything. It could be, like, why do I always stub my toe in the morning? It, but what is a question you have? My toe this morning. I have <laughs> bleeding from one of my toenails. Um, yeah, so a big, like, question like that that I don't have an answer to. And the one maybe that nobody will have an answer to. Well, I mean, really, I mean, it's probably not as cool as that kind of question, but uh, I think the big question in beekeeping and in the industry is, um, you know, is how or when are they ever going to get like a a control for varroa mites? So I think I've mentioned a couple of times, hopefully now, because it is by and far the largest issue, but is uh, these varroa mites in colonies. And so the control and management of that is like the major sort of unanswered question is how how are beekeepers going to continue to to survive with these kind of losses and mostly in due to the management of varroa mites is probably the big unanswered question mm-hmm. uh, not not as cool as the big bang but i mean yours was actually related to topic so i mean that like that's like double bon- uh, double uh, double points i should have made mine similar so the last question i always like to ask is uh, book recommendation. So like the, the way you think about it is like, is there anything that anyone listening to you, so like basically anyone to this point is probably like, oh, this guy's interesting. I like what he's up to. So any book that you like reading or that you've gifted to other people is really uh, usually a good one. It doesn't have to be about uh, beekeeping, but it's cool if it is. But uh, what are some book recommendations you suggest uh, based yeah. on your own interests? The Honeybee Democracy is a, is a really cool book. So if you want a kind of a cool book that's not like, just beekeeping or how to how to beekeep um yeah tom seeley's honeybee democracy is a super cool because it's not and i think i i don't know if it's true but it's it is mo- a lot about beekeeping but i think there's a lot of lessons that can be applied elsewhere so i heard i don't know if this is true but some big companies use that book as part of their like um some retreat and management training or something like that because they're sort of like cool I don't know, bigger questions that you could kind of think about when you look at the, how, how the colony makes decisions and things like that, that are kind of spelled out in a really graceful way in that book. And that was Brandon. Check him out at the links in the show notes at wsu.edu, Washington State University. And his research is just phenomenal. I hope Every, everyone listening got something from this. I mean, I know I did. It's such an interesting topic. But without further ado, let's cue the outro and check us out next week. If there's someone that you want to have me interview, let me know. I will add them. There's still a little room and I'm filling, finishing it up. But you should get a lot of bee content this month. They talk about bee week. We're getting a bee month. Additionally, remember to check out in the show notes the link to the website the crowdfunding campaign that I'm going to be running soon. If you've liked the, the podcast, if you've liked the episode, if you want to help out, check the link, sign up, share it with your friends. And every, every person, every time you get someone to sign up, any of this type of information is another chance that you're going to win. One of the things that I'm making and what I'm making is basically a modern beehive. I'm talking stainless steel, aerogel insulation, sensors, uh, data analytics, all that stuff, easily accessible 24-7. And that's going to be the crowdfunding campaign, but 
Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We can be found on Twitter at LowellWishHere, Facebook, and on the website, learningwithlowell.com. Also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every Monday, new episodes every Tuesday, and new blog posts around every Thursday. Remember to share and tell your friends. Please and thank you.